Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Maybe the problem is really we have too much time and too much money and too many drugs, and we're not really meant for that. We are you know, innate strivers, and without enough friction and something to strive for, we can very quickly get lost. So the, the prescription really then you know, is to, again, create this world within a world, self-winding strategies to try to avoid some of these you know, easy pleasures and intoxicants, and then literally invite pain and discomfort into our lives, intentionally do things that are hard in deference to our basic primordial physiology, which was meant for a life on this planet that's physically at least a lot harder than the life that we have now. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame and I am your host. And today we have an incredible guest, Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations, has testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate, and maintains a thriving clinical practice. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. Dr. Lemke recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. Her new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, an instant New York Times bestseller, explores moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. Friends, family, listeners, you must check out Dr. Lemke. Her book, Dopamine Nation, is incredible. She's been on every podcast you can think of from Joe Rogan, Huberman Lab, Rich Roll. She's done it all. And I was so grateful she came to talk to little old me on The Courage to Change. We had a wonderful conversation. She's the kind of person I could talk to for hours. We live in a dopamine overloaded world. And I think a lot of people will feel better after listening to Dr. Lemke because she really describes how difficult it is to not get addicted to things, even from the perspective of someone who might not otherwise be genetically predetermined to addiction. And I thought that was very interesting and made the case for people who are genetically predispositioned why it's so difficult to not get addicted to things in our society today. Additionally, I want you guys to really listen and pay pay attention to the information around the co-location of the dopamine reward pathway and the pain pathway, how the dopamine reward pathway and the pain pathway, they overlap and why that's important. So please, I'm not going to give any more away, but please pay special attention to that because it implies that there are coping skills that we can all use in our daily lives that work with our neurochemistry. So enough out of me. Please enjoy Dr. Anna Lemke. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. 
We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to start with that. I've listened to a ton of your interviews, read your book, Dopamine Nation. And as a person in long-term recovery who grew up in AA and who's been through every level of treatment, addiction treatment care that exists, um, had many, many interactions with psychiatrists, counselors, that the way that you portray the community that raised me, that I grew up in, that I I recovered in is one of the best, kindest, most compassionate ways I have ever heard a professional, particularly psychiatrist, describe our community. And it was deeply moving for me. Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. You know, as I talk about in the book, you are one of my heroes. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad that you feel like I got it right. Yeah. Yeah. And not only did I feel like you got it right, if I felt like you spoke both languages, right? You're the, the, you were you were able to speak the language of the people who don't understand, which is like, you know, on the Huberman podcast, you talked about the itch that can't be scratched and how that just sometimes you, you wake up and you're scratching it in the middle of the night and also talking about what the shame feels like and the different types of shame and your book, Dopamine Nation describes so many things. And for people who haven't read it, go get this book. It's incredible. And I didn't realize how intimate it was going to be. I thought it was going to be more science-based and you weave the science in really well. And I loved that you talked about your own addiction and your own and you that cross addiction, how you can have these addictions to things that kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, my my addiction to romance novels that sort of came as a surprise midlife because I had always thought of myself as somebody who does not have the addiction gene. And yet I found myself caught up in this behavior that really resembled, you know, the behaviors of people with addictions that I had been treating. So that that was a bit of an aha moment. And I, I do actually think that, you know, I certainly have my problems, but I would say, you know, when we think about the innate vulnerability that people come into the world with, you know, the, that vulnerability to different types of psychopathology, I would say I'm not really high on the addiction meter right? Um, I've got uh, other problems that I'm higher on, but nonetheless found myself getting caught up in, with this addictive type of behavior, which for me really speaks to the ways in which our environment is unprecedented in terms of our vulnerability to the problem of addiction because of the incredible supply of highly reinforcing drugified uh, substances and behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, you, you describe us as a cacti in the rainforest right? and and we're drowning in dopamine. And it's actually a great place to start for us, which is, can you describe, you know, what is dopamine? And I know this, you get asked this every time, but it's a great place to start. What is dopamine and how does that relate to what you call limbic capitalism or the dopamine economy? 
Right. Okay. Actually, limbic capitalism is a great term uh, that comes from Dave, uh, one of my colleagues, David Courtright. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It captures that dark side of capitalism. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brains. Sometimes people say, well, could you eat dopamine? And if you did, nothing would happen because dopamine itself doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. It's made from precursors in the brain and was only discovered as a neurotransmitter in the human brain uh, in the last 100 years. So in the 1950s, uh, it was detected as a neurotransmitter in the human brain, which is not all that long ago. It was known to function as a neurotransmitter in the brains of other organisms, but it wasn't known to be a neurotransmitter in the human brain. And since that time, there's just been an explosion in the research around dopamine, what it does, how it functions. For those of you who don't know, neurotransmitters are the chemicals or molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. And that gap is called a synapse. And the reason for that gap is to have more fine-tuned modulation of neural circuits, which is accomplished by these molecules called neurotransmitters. So the last 100 years of neuroscience research has revealed the essential nature of dopamine in the process of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It is not the only neurotransmitter or even chemical in the brain involved in that process, but it's probably the most important one. And it's the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And for neuroscientists, it's become the kind of common currency for measuring the addictive potential of a substance or behavior. So we all have a baseline level, tonic level of dopamine firing, but when we ingest an intoxicant or do a behavior that's highly reinforcing, then we get an increase in dopamine firing temporarily above baseline. And that's what gives us that hit of dopamine or that feeling of euphoria or pleasure or satisfaction or getting high or whatever you want to call it. Um, and the more dopamine that's released and the faster that it's released in this particular circuit of the brain called the reward pathway, the more potentially reinforcing or addictive that substance or behavior is. But it's also co-located with pain, right? So this was something really interesting that you talk about, which is that this reward pathway, I was going to call it a punishment pathway, but pain pathway, um, <laughs> um, but this, this co-location is extremely important to understanding what our baseline is and why it gets so out of balance. Yes. So in addition to the discovery of dopamine as a neurotransmitter, one of the other really fascinating findings in the last 75 years or so in neuroscience is that pleasure and pain are processed in roughly the same parts of the brain and they work like opposite sides of the balance. So if you imagine like a beam on a central fulcrum, when that balance is at rest, the beam is level with the ground. When we experience pleasure, it tips one way. And when we experience pain, it tips the opposite way. And there are certain rules governing this balance. And the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level. That beam wants to stay parallel with the ground. And with any deviation from that level or neutral state, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance, uh, which neuroscientists call homeostasis. So the drive to restore homeostasis is one of the most fundamental and important biological processes really in the universe, uh, but certainly in living organisms. So when we do something that's pleasurable or reinforcing, our balance tips to the side of pleasure and we get a release of dopamine in the reward pathway. The more rewarding or addictive the substance or behavior is, the more dopamine is released and the more that balance tips to the side of pleasure and the faster it tips potentially. But of course, uh, as soon as it deviates, our brains want to restore it to the level position. And here's really the key point. The way that our 
our brains restore a level balance or homeostasis is first by tipping it an equal and opposite amount to the side of the pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the after effect, or that moment of wanting to press next episode on a Netflix series. Are you still watching? Right? So it's exactly. <laughs> and what happens is essentially with that increase in dopamine firing, our brain adapts to that by immediately downregulating our own dopamine production and dopamine receptors, not just to baseline level, but below baseline level. So we go into that dopamine deficit state, which is a state of physiologic pain, right? We don't want to be in that dopamine deficit state. We want to get back up to at least tonic baseline levels, preferably, you know, higher than that, which is what keeps us seeking for the next reward. Now, in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, it's very difficult to find these rewards. So that means that with any pleasure we ingest, we run out very quickly. And so although our pleasure pain balance may go to the side of pain temporarily, our reward, it's run out. So we just wait long enough and eventually, you know, a homeostasis or a level balance is restored. And I often imagine that as these, these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it. So they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And then they get off and homeostasis is restored. But now you take the situation where we're living in this world of overwhelming overabundance. That means we never run out of our drug or it's very easy to get more. TikTok is literally infinite. That means we've got more and more gremlins accumulating on the pain side of the balance to try to restore homeostasis. And eventually we can get stuck in that pain position or that dopamine deficit state. And now we're using not to feel good, but just to level a balance and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're in withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. You know, I'm I'm in recovery. My husband's 20, almost 20 years in recovery, and we have two little boys. As people in recovery, trying to raise children and promote the struggle, right? Promote the working so that you do get the pleasure, right? You do get the, it is, it feels like it, the world is calibrated to go against all of the positive balanced adaptations that us as parents are trying to provide. I didn't notice it before I had kids, but when I had kids, you start to really see that limbic capitalism that's, you know, jumping on this pain and you see, you know, your kids get more stressed and more irritated and behaviorally agitated things because you realize they're being flooded. And, you know, until we, I read about this stuff, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And so I think that's really, you know, what I'm hoping I was hoping to accomplish with dopamine nation was just to raise people's awareness that they do realize that we are living in this ecosystem, which you say, you know, is really conspiring against us, right? It's it's trying to get us addicted. It's been engineered to do that. And just the awareness of that, and then trying to then create a world within a world to enable ourselves to not go completely crazy in a crazy world is, you know, the first step. It's so scary to be a parent and and raise your child in a world that's as complicated in you know, hidden ways as the world that we live in now. But I think it's also a really hopeful thing because, you know, you can have these discussions from very early on with your children. And and there's no guarantees, right? You could, you could be the perfect parent. We know that. But I think you can be very optimistic that by having these conversations and raising this awareness and teaching folks about how our primitive wiring is mismatched for this modern ecosystem, but what we can do in the face of that, we really can raise, you know, resilient 
children who will figure out a way to live in balance with our abundance and with the technology that has a lot of good things about it, but it definitely has this dark side. You talked about deaths of despair and increases in alcoholism after 2002, increases in the potency of cannabis. And one that I found really interesting was that 70% of deaths worldwide are attributable to modifiable behavioral risk factors. In these conversations, on the one hand, we have this scary kind of dark piece. And on the other hand, I think there is a whole movement that is finally willing to say, you know, I've been working on my mental health and in the mental health field for most of my life at this point in some way, whether I was doing it for myself or doing it for my, you know, my career. And when I started doing this, you didn't talk about being an addict or being an alcoholic or mental health. And so the rise of the intensity and some of these statistics that I'll that I'll let you talk about are is has also raised the awareness and the willingness to talk about it, which is really that piece is hopeful for me. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it sounds like, you know, in your younger days, uh, you know, when you were struggling with your own mental illness, you sounds like you felt pretty isolated and there was more stigma than there is now. Whereas now it's almost become normalized yeah. to have a mental health problem because so many of us do. And so that, that awareness and willingness to talk about it. But I, I do think that we need to then also get it right in terms of, well, what's actually causing the problem? Because if we don't get that right, we really won't know how to intervene. And I think that you know the problem of overabundance is not usually identified as the, the source of our mental health problems. You know, we, we look to trauma or to socioeconomic disparity or, you know, to an inborn mental illness, you know, a chemical imbalance in our brains. When in fact, I think, you know, we can make a compelling argument that our brains are fine. What's the problem is that our brains are no longer adapted for the world that we've created. And we're very unlikely to be able to change the basic physiology of our pleasure pain balance or that primitive. I mean, it's been conserved over millions of years of evolution, unchanged across species. Even the most primitive organism has a a basic pleasure pain balance that works in the same way that ours does. So we're not going to be able to to change that. And we're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of the technology and and the kind of the overabundance, right? We're not going to go back to subsistence farming. Like nobody wants to do that and it would be foolish to do that. Now, what you know, the challenge here is how can we use our abundant gray matter, which are the layers of the brain that have piled on top of that primitive lizard brain that's been conserved across uh, so many years of evolution and figure out, okay, if our abundance is actually killing us, you know, if we're literally titillating ourselves to death, how are we going to navigate this system? And so that that's really the challenge that I sort of set up in the book, saying let's re-identify the problem of actually an addictogenic world, not that we're necessarily, you know, had bad childhoods or have a bad spouse or, you know, are being, let's say, triggered in some other way. You know, maybe the problem is really we have too much time and too much money and too many drugs. Drugs, and we're not really meant for that. We are, you know, innate strivers, and without enough friction and something to strive for, we can very quickly get lost. So the the prescription really then, you know, is to again create this world within a world, self finding strategies to try to avoid some of these you know easy pleasures and intoxicants, and then literally invite 
pain and discomfort into our lives, intentionally do things that are hard in deference to our basic primordial physiology, which was meant for a life on this planet that's physically at least a lot harder than the life that we have now. Right, right. Yeah. And the movement, you talked about movement being connected to dopamine and it also being one of the best antidepressants. And I think, you know, it's gotten really hard, at least in, in, I grew up in Silicon Valley and my sister, who's since she calls it the knowledge workers for knowledge workers, you know, who are behind the computer, we're not doing movement based work. And so you have to fit that in. You have to work on that. It has to be, and it used to come naturally. And that that's something, you know, there's so many things to think about. And I always laugh with my friends, like, why is it so hard to be healthy? Like, it's so hard to be a person to find, I have to find and afford the organic food. I have to fit in the exercise. I have to fit in these things. And and it's not meant to, the system does not promote balance, health. I wonder, you talked about, you know, whether these mental health issues are the chicken or the egg, right? Are they they genetic? Are they from all the abundance? I was wondering if you ever have, you know, working in dual diagnosis, I personally have never met someone struggling with addiction who didn't struggle with depression and anxiety, even if it was situational, circumstantial. I'm curious, is that something, are you seeing more mental health than you used to 20 years ago when you started? Or are we just diagnosing more? Are we just looking for more, you know, labels and answers? Well, it's a good question because we do know that sensitivity to making a diagnosis will increase the rates of diagnosis and not necessarily uh, reflect true prevalence in a population. Um, And of course, as mental health disorders become less stigmatized and people are more willing to seek help and be labeled in a certain way, we're definitely going to have some of that increase be a result of just that we're naming it you know, where we didn't before. But even having said that, I think it's become very clear that the actual rates of depression and anxiety are increasing across the world, especially in rich nations. The richer the country, the steeper that graph of uh, rates of uh, increased rates of anxiety, depression, and also suicide. I mean, objectively, we are seeing more people ending their lives. And of course, that's an extreme form of, of despair, which you know, it it has an objective and quantifiable endpoint that is indisputable, right? It's not like, oh, well, did you get, you know, 10 points on some depression scale? It's so, and that's going up all over the world too. So I think, I think it's, you know, it's definitively true that people are less happy than they used to be. And people are experiencing more depression, anxiety, and suicidal thinking than they used to 30, 50 years ago. And, you know, of course we have to ask ourselves, why is that? I mean, why is that? And of course, not just uh, psychological pain, but physical pain. We have uh, the United States has one of the highest rates of physical pain in the world, despite consuming some, you know, 30 to 80% of the world's opioid analgesics, or maybe because of consuming uh, the world's opioid analgesics, right? You know, and I have other, I have many young patients who have no objective evidence of physical disease and yet have full body pain. I have young people who come from wonderful, loving families and yet 
they are miserable. So, you know, it's it's not, we have to really look for, well, what else is going on here? And that that's really where I feel like, you know, that's the contribution that I'm trying to make here after practicing psychiatry for 25 plus years is that I think it's very possible that the major contributor to our current despair is this incredible drugified, addictogenic overabundance uh, with an absence of difficult, uh, physically challenging, and even painful activities that we need to do in order to keep our hedonic or joy set point at a level that makes you know our lives bearable and also hopefully joyful. Do you think that we need to teach people about boredom? I think we need to teach people to tolerate all kinds of psychological and physical distress. And this is, so the main message in mental health for the past 120 years, approximately, has been to seek out comfort. You know, don't, don't let yourself tolerate any distress. If you experience pain, that will leave a scar in your brain, setting you up for future pain in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder or centralizing pain disorder, which is a physical kind of a pain syndrome. And so that's been our narrative, right? And that's certainly how I was taught to parent, you know, protect your child from any kind of distress or trauma because otherwise they're going to end up on somebody's couch, you know, going through uh, whatever their neuroses are. But I think that's that's not right. That turns out that's not right. And that we're actually doing our children a disservice by raising them in that way because we're not giving them the opportunity to build up the mental calluses that will make them thriving and resilient people. And again, if we go back to this pleasure pain balance, you know, if we intentionally press on the pain side and invite hard things into our lives, those gremlins hop on the pleasure side and tilt our hedonic set point to the side of pleasure. So it's basic physiology. You don't even need to look to morality. You can look to morality in religious texts. It's all there too, but you don't have to. You can look to neuroscience and the neuroscience teaches us that we were meant for a world that is a place of scarcity, a place of danger, a place where we have to work very hard for our survival because that is no longer the world that we live in or the world that we've created. We have to simulate that and we have to encourage our children uh, to simulate that as well. It's really interesting. You know, I've met with and, and seen many a psychiatrists and most psychiatrists don't talk about this aspect of it, right? We talk about much more of the pharmacological advancements or or lack thereof. And I've always wondered why it is that we don't do more physical brain testing. You know, we can test and, and forgive me, I'm, I'm coming, not coming from a background of exactly how this chemistry works, but you can test to see how much of some of these chemicals are in our brains. Why is it that psychiatry does not, I'm sure part of its expense, but take advantage of testing more and having a much more data-driven rather than anecdotal, you know, this is how I'm feeling. I mean, I have felt like such a, you know, an, an experiment, right? Like, okay, let's, right. let's do 10 mm-hmm. milligrams of this. And at this point, <laughs> I, at this point, I know, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's winter. I have, you know, seasonal effective. Let's add 10 more on the fluoxetine and we'll, you know, like, <laughs> you know, whatever. So I, I feel dialed in on that, but I've always wondered why it took 10, 15 years to find that right chemistry. Why can't we test to see how much dopamine, you know, is your tonic, your balance there? And if not, what do we need? And how much serotonin do you have? And how much of these things, why don't we test for that? 
because the science isn't there. Okay. The science isn't there. And if anybody tells you that, that it is, they're, they're selling you a bill of goods. There's, it's still a black box. You know, the, the, the imaging studies that we do have that we can rely on are, you know, aggregates of taken of, of different, many different subjects on a very specific part of the brain, engaging in a very specific task. But if you were to just to generally put somebody in a scanner or try to get, you know, there's way too much inter-individual variability. It just wouldn't mean anything. You know, so in highly controlled studies, you know, within a very narrow kind of loop or circuit, we can, and then comparing that to the animal research where we can really be much more invasive and stick probes in their brains and then slice, you know, have them do an activity, slice their brain open after, like things we can't do in human beings. And maybe we shouldn't be doing in animals. I don't know. It depends on your perspective. But, you know, we can put that all together and then make some good good estimates of like, okay, these are these, these are the basic circuits and this is how they're working together. But even that it's quite rudimentary. I mean, it's very possible that in a hundred years we'll have a very different notion of dopamine and its role in the brain. I think it's just really important to be humble in the face of how much we still don't know. And, you know, I say to my patients, like psychiatry is by and large, not a science. It really is a kind of (laughs) <laughs> Never heard any psychiatrist say that. <laughs> yeah, I like to say that because I really feel that it's true. You know, these medications were sort of, they were discovered serendipitously in, in the treatment of patients for tuberculosis and noticing that they had elevated mood, you know, lithium for bipolar. So we have no idea why that would work, you know, but it's been found, you know, in large cohorts. So, and we don't have anything better. So we're kind of doing that. But, you know, and I do feel that these medications in, in, in instances of patients I've you know treated in my own career have been absolutely essential and life-saving. And so I'm grateful for these tools that we don't really understand. But I think it's important still to be very humble about how much we really still don't understand. And as I say in the book, I really think the lived experience of human beings is incredibly powerful. I mean, we have passed down stories about the lived experience of humans since the very first human. It is our repository for an incredible store of probably the most valuable knowledge that we as humans have. You know, I I went out into the world, I had this experience, I did this, and then this happened. And I bring that back to my village, right? So that they can then build on that knowledge. And so again, to me, people in recovery who have had by virtue of their actual survival had to figure out how not to consume certain addictive substances. These are really valuable lived experiences, which cannot be captured by like a case control study or a cohort study, you know, or, or the scientific method like that only goes so far. People's lived experience through time and their sense of causality. Like I did this and then this happened. And then this is what ha- what happened after that. Like that is incredibly important. So I always like to say that we can't do a blood test. We can't do a brain scan, but we have lots of lived experience. And so let's, let's look to that as well. Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. Oh, we've got meetings. Oh God, I've been holding that in for so long. I just wanted to let you know because I think that you will love them. It doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out how to navigate relationships in your sobriety or trying to get your nutrition to a healthier place or working on your parenting recovery or just trying to find meditation that will work for you. You've been trying to do it. You know it's good for you, but they all make you sit 
too still and you're really not into mantras and you're not sure if you're supposed to sit in a chair or the couch or your bed, there are so many support groups to choose from, more than 70 a week. And I'm sure you'll find one that you love. I'd like to give you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app and use promo code COURAGE at checkout for one month free of meetings. Again, go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app. Use promo code COURAGE for one month of free meetings. Okay, back to the show. You talked about truth-telling as, as this protective and evolved you know, practice and as we do in recovery and, and truth-telling as you describe, which is accurate, is so much more than just telling the truth, right? It's, it's, and it's so funny how it's, you know, I, I went to my first AA meeting when I was 15 years old and I got sober at 19 and you know, have been in Alcoholics Anonymous and various 12-step you know, my whole life basically at this point. And um, it's baked in, right? It's baked right. like the, the truth telling is it's baked into who I am. I'm uncomfortable if I don't disclose, like there's an alignment gone that right. is, that I see that is not the same as other people's, you know, characteristic. And there's also a comfortability of this is who I am, warts and all. And I've been talking to a lot of <laughs> executives about, you know, hey, if you talk about your, if you're in recovery or your mental right. health or your struggles, you open up a workplace where people are willing to do that and so on yeah. and so forth. You believe that that's something we can pull into, at, you know, or out of the recovery community and into a, the bigger population as a helpful tool. How do you talk about that to people who aren't in recovery as and help them with that coping mechanism? Yeah. Well, first I like to acknowledge that I did learn it from my patients and I noticed a pattern over many years that the patients who were in the best recovery were the ones who couldn't and wouldn't lie about anything. And the, the folks who couldn't get into recovery were, were typically folks who were compulsive liars about many things. They got into the lying habit. Lying or denial? Kind of both. Lying. Denial is a form of lying to yourself and, and also lying to others. And as people transitioned from being in their addiction and being in recovery, what had to come with that was this um, kind of embracing really a kind of vigilance around adhering to the truth. And it takes an act of vigilance because we're all natural liars. Um, you know, the average adult, adult tells one to two lies per day. It's just sort of our, I, I think, well, I mean, it kind of goes back to the origins of language, of human language. And language is essentially a tool. And it's a tool that can be used in, in many different ways. But one of the ways that language can be used as a tool is as a manipulative tool you know, where you can use language to deceive others as a way to uh, protect yourself or your tribe. In the book, I talk about you know, examples in the animal kingdom of, of lying or deceit, where this particular beetle, it can make itself have the scent of like an ant so that it can invade the ant colony. So, you know, and, and you know, small children naturally lie, like they go through a phase where they lie about stuff and it, it just comes naturally. And then as we age, and our our access to sophisticated language increases. Our, our you know the sophistication of our lies can get better. But at some point, ethics kicks in and empathy. And then many of us are, are begin to recognize that we don't like to be lied to. And so then then we kind of rein in our lying to a point. And the point at which most of us don't go beyond is uh, that we most of us continue to engage on a regular basis in small lies that hide our own 
selfishness or weaknesses. And it's just something as simple as the the, the example I often use is, oh, oh, sorry, you know, I'm I'm five to ten minutes late for meeting. Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm I'm late. The traffic was terrible. Well, when in fact the traffic was fine, I, I just wanted I just took five extra minutes to you know drink my coffee and read the paper because I did. So, but what but folks in recovery have taught me is that they can't tell those little lies because once that little lie then becomes the the wave on the sandcastle that eventually tears their their castle of recovery down. So I got really curious about that. Like, what is it about that kind of radical, vigilant, invested truth-telling? And I think it works on a lot of different levels. There's uh, some evidence suggesting that it actually stimulates the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is the gray matter area behind our foreheads that's essential for future planning, delayed gratification, and also storytelling. And by stimulating the prefrontal cortex, we're better able to keep an eye on those gremlins who are hopping on and off the balance. So that's one thing there. Radical truth-telling promotes true intimacy. You know, we often talk about human connection being the antidote to addiction, but we don't often give people the tools for how to make true intimate connections. And one of the ways to do that is uh, to be, you know, brutally honest with the people that we love, especially when we're lying about, you know, our own faults and our own transgressions. Of course, you know, you don't want to be honest in a way that is going to hurt other people. That's not what we're talking about here. But you also want to avoid those lies too. And then I guess probably most importantly, you know, lying is words are a way not just to organize our past experience, but also to provide a roadmap for the future. So the stories that we tell about our lives are really fundamental for shaping for shaping future choices. So if we're telling stories that aren't true, we're likely to repeat our mistakes. Whereas if we're willing to be really brutally honest with ourselves in particular and with other people in the spirit of kindness and justice and truth and love, then we make much better roadmaps for the future. And so for, for many of those reasons, I, I do really, I have come in my adult life, really, because I grew up in a family where there were quite, quite a lot of lies told. I've come in my adult life to really value truth-telling, to aspire to be as truthful as I can, knowing that I will often fail in that, and to raise my children to prioritize honesty above many other desirable outcomes that they might want for themselves, like success in school or in sports or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a saying, a Scott Redman, incredible man who passed away, but he used to say the scalpel of truth with the anesthetic of love. Yeah. That's nice. Uh, yeah. I really like that. That's yeah. great. I can picture that, you know, and, and that's something that's very normalized in our community. So one of the coping skills that you offer to people struggling with addiction, and, and you do talk about some of your cases in the book about how many people who struggle with addiction, who after this 30 days abstinence fast, which we're, we'll talk about real quick, get better, which I, I, I was you know, amazed by, I can't begin to tell you how many 30 days I would not get better after. Um, <laughs> I mean, my life got better, but yeah. you know, I was still that person who was struggling, but you always regardless suggest if someone's struggling with addiction and you had, you, you know, sex addiction, gambling addiction, you had the woman with water, you talk about this abstinence, this 30 day dopamine fast. With this dopamine fast, so, so you know, dopamine fast could be whatever. And I love, I'm using this now in my vernacular, which is like, I'm talking about things as dopamine as opposed to sugar or this or that, because I'm just right. seeking the dopamine and knowing that that's what I need can make right. me go, 
okay, it's not that I need sugar. I actually need, I'm looking for a dopamine hit. How can I get that in other ways? How do you do a dopamine fast? Even if I were to take out, let's just say sugar for me, if I were to take out sugar, that's not a dopamine fast. The whole, my phone, you know, this, how do you do a dopamine fast in a world where I am required by my job to participate in some of these things? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you could do an extreme dopamine fast and like literally like live like a monk or in a cave. And some people do that, but that's not really what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is choose that substance or that behavior that you have a conflicted relationship with that. Once you start, you have difficulty stopping that it feels good in the moment, but you feel worse afterwards. You have that dopamine come down. That is, you know, that you're using in a way that you're lying about, or that's just inconsistent with your goal and values, choose that thing. I mean, that could be an app on your phone, it could be a, a type of food, it could be sugar, right? You know, it could be, you know, another substance, it could be really a, a whole bunch of different types of behaviors and eliminate that for a month. And why a month? Because it really takes on average about a month for the brain to finish going through acute withdrawal and then begin to reset reward pathways. And we need to do that in order to be able to have an inkling of what it is to live life without our drug of choice. Because most of the time, if we only do a couple of weeks, we're just in the withdrawal phase. And then we think, oh, without my drug, I'm going to be miserable. Forget it. I'm going to go back to my drug. What people don't see is, no, you've got to give enough time for your brain to start to rebuild itself in the absence of the drug. And that takes a minimum of four weeks in general. Now you're saying after 30 days, you didn't feel better. I bet you felt a little bit better. I I felt better. I just didn't feel like I could maintain abstinence. (laughs) Right, right. So then it's, and it's hard, right? Because, you know, even when you have a severe addiction, you can kind of give it up for 30 days, but what to do after that. But I think that the reason I suggest 30 days is, is uh, number one, it's like an amount of time that people can wrap their heads around, right? right? right it's, not, right. it's not a lifetime. Right. Number two, typically by four weeks, people are out of acute withdrawal and begin to experience some of the benefits of abstinence. And number three, we need that amount of time on minimum to be able to get enough distance from our drug that we can look back and see true cause and effect. Because people have often said, my patients, like when I look back at my addicted self, it's surreal. I don't even know who that, I don't recognize that person. Mm-hmm. So you want to have that kind of like, what is the real me and what is the addicted me. And then of course, the work begins, right? The work of either maintaining abstinence, or if you're deciding you want to reintegrate that substance in your life and use in moderation, what is that going to look like? How are you going to do that? What kind of self-binding strategies? One of the self-binding strategies, you know, that I don't really talk about as a self-binding strategy, but there's a whole chapter in the book called Pressing on the Pain Side is, you know, yes, as you say, we need our dopamine. So how can we get it and still abstain from these intoxicants? Well, one of the ways to get it, which is much healthier, is to get it indirectly by doing things that are hard and paying for our dopamine up front. So for example, exercise, we know from loads of experiments that exercise, dopamine levels slowly increase over the latter portion of exercise. And then dopamine levels remain elevated for hours after exercise before coming back down to baseline. That's really powerful because it says, here's a potential source of very long lasting dopamine and no dopamine deficit state, right? You only stayed above base tonic firing levels. You never had to go below. And that's key because it's the going above and below that gets us into that cycle, that addictive cycle where we're chasing the intoxicant just to kind of, you know, get our head above water. I'm 
may be making you make something up, but what percentage of people do you think are born just really below a normal baseline and born that way and or they do so much damage that they really can't bring it back? I mean, I would be speculating, but I think the sort of 10 to 15% lifetime prevalence rates that we see for, you know, for addiction are probably people who are, are coming to this world with a, an innate vulnerability inherited through their DNA for the problem of addiction. And then I think on top of that, you've probably got another, well, now you've got a growing percentage of people who just because we're exposed to so many intoxicants through the course of, you know, a normal human day, we are changing our brains and entering this kind of addictive physiology because of the ecosystem. But I think, you know, historically, you know, at baseline, I mean, you can go back to the earliest records, you know, ancient Greece and well before there's documented cases of addiction. So it's it's always been that there has been a subset of the population vulnerable to this problem. And there's always been opioids and alcohol and cannabinoid products, but it's been about, you know, 10 to 15%, but that is changing now. Now we're seeing more and more rates of people with sort of pre-addictive or mild addictive states. And we also have many more drugs, including drugs that didn't exist before. Video games, social media, online pornography, online shopping, online investing, all of these digital, all this digital content, which is so reinforcing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do your, how how old are your kids? They're teenagers. Yeah. I have teenagers. Teenagers. And at what age did you let them interact with social media or these addictive things? Well, we really didn't, we didn't get our kids any of their own personal devices until high school. And then when they did get that, they got a laptop. It's different now that my younger kids, because with COVID, everything went online and you absolutely need a personal laptop. So all our kids really had their own personal laptop. Uh, the younger ones in particular, starting in about sixth grade, but we haven't gotten our kids any phones. What our kids have done is by the time they got to high school, they went out and got their own phones. And we, we essentially have not really specifically policed their use, but we have a lot of family discussions around the dark side. And then we do have one child who without our permission, when he started high school, went and got a phone. We knew he would be especially vulnerable and he indeed proved to really struggle with the phone, ended up being on on it during most of his class time, was failing one of his classes. So we, we actively took that phone away and he still hasn't gotten it back. So I think that's a healthy respect for inter, you know, for differences between humans. You know, some kids can handle it and kind of figure it out and other kids are going to need more support and more intervention. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, I think you called it a hypodermic needle. It's like, oh God, (laughs) it is definitely something that, um, I, what percentage of people, again, I know, I know you're speculating, but what percentage of people you think are addicted to their phones meet criteria, I should say. Yeah. me. Oh gosh. I don't even know. I mean, when I walk through an airport now, I I almost want to put it at 90%, right? There's who is not, but of course that's absurd. I mean, I I worry that we're going to look back 50 years from now and look at the smartphone and and view it like a pack of cigarettes and say to ourselves, how on, how on earth could we have thought that was okay? That's my worry. This book is incredible and it talks so much about the brain mechanism that's behind addiction, which I explain to families all the time about it's not about what you did or what they did or, you know, these, this is what's happening in their brain. And I, I don't think people really get that this, when you see someone who's in the throes of addiction, something different is happening in their brain. I call it a uh, K-fuck radio where it's like, <laughs> it's, it's just on, it's loud and you hear 
hear things coming, but those other things coming through have to break that barrier. And that recovery for me just turns it to every day, it turns by itself back up and it, recovery is just turning it down, turning it down so I could hear the other things. And, but I know that when it gets loud, you know, that's, that's what's happening. And it's just this bubble. And it's so hard to explain that to people. And, and your book does an incredible job of explaining it in all different cases and scenarios. So thank you for writing that. You're welcome. And thank you. And I actually love that radio metaphor. That's a good one. (laughs) You know, as AA folks, we get all the metaphors, we get all the yeah. sayings. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's great, the lingo. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I would love to stay in touch. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Ashley, uh, for you know the work you do and for your recovery and you know being open about being a, in a person in recovery. I think that's really wonderful. Thank you. Hello, friends. What did I tell you? Dr. Anna Lemke, kind of a badass. Incredible. You know how when somebody just opens their mouth sometimes and you go, you're much smarter than I am. And I... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And that was definitely how I I felt. And her voice also was very... Her book, I listened to Dopamine Nation on audio, which is great. And you all should download it immediately. Her voice was so soothing. She seemed like her parenting style was what I aspire to be basically. Totally. I think it's sort of like what I think I am in my mind is what she's actually doing. And then what instead I'm doing is just slapping him in front of like a TV screen and praying for the best, you know? Totally. Totally. She is, I don't think she'd want to be my mom. I'm pretty (laughs) sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that may have driven her to either another career or deeper into psychiatry. But she, you know, she really marries the science, the neurobiology of addiction with the lived experience of working with people for 25 years. And she's got such an honesty about, I mean, when she said that (laughs) the psychiatry wasn't really a science, I was like, say what? You're not allowed to say that. (laughs) I'm like, yes, it's an art form. Just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know what I mean? And that's the most honest psychiatrist perspective I've ever heard. And not because it's not a science. Actually, that's not why. It's just that she talks about, you know, in my experience with psychiatry, it's like, what's your symptom? Here's your pill. And look, that's helped me a lot. So I'm not complaining, but it's never been a conversation about root causes and what could be going on. And here's an app, you know, where are you getting your dopamine from? Here's a an, a dopamine fast, you know, 30 days and just the different things that she offers. There's no, there hasn't been in depth, but I guess that's why she's, you know, head of that program at Stanford University. So there you have it. Yeah, I feel like when you're at the top of the game, you can kind yeah, yeah. of you can call out yeah. whatever you want to call yeah, out yeah, at yeah. that you're point, right. and people are like, yep. "Yeah, you know all this." Maybe this was just me, and maybe this is because well, this is a little behind the curtain, but I'm listening in every episode while they while they're talking, <laughs> so maybe I have more time for reflection. Weirdo, weirdo, <laughs> <laughs> just a guy listening. Yeah, but were you uh, struck? I I literally was deleting apps at one point while I was listening. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, she's right. Oh, she's my God, right. Becky. My dopamine is all out of whack. Oh, I was like, she's amazing. got me. She's got she's me. Got I got to get rid of that. I got to do it. It's gotta, all of us. It's crazy. That was the thing is that in her book, it's super relatable. And one of the things I think was really uh, interesting that she said in the book was that in gambling addiction, so in in super intense gambling addicts, they measured the dopamine and the dopamine was highest in this study when the player lost. Increased dopamine when they lost money and it was at its highest when they were making a bet and it was a 50-50 chance whether they were going to win or lose it. And so maximum uncertainty. Wow. And why that's interesting is that it just speaks to the brain is looking for friction. It's looking for challenge. It's looking for uncertainty, excitement, danger. I mean, that that is literally the definition of my brain. And I think I want stability, but nothing I do is in the, in that vein. Like it's hilarious. I, it's, I always talked about how I was like, I got to marry an accountant. And like I went, I married someone the opposite of an accountant, but it describes perfectly this this need and you can fulfill those needs in healthy ways. I think that's the like the headline is like whether you're super high on the susceptibility scale or not, you can fulfill those needs in different ways. But our economy, our dopamine economy, our limbic capitalism is set so that it will engage this part of us to get us to engage and spend money and, and FaceTime, etc. There are so many more people now who wouldn't have otherwise struggled necessarily with addiction who have this moderate overconsumption, moderate compulsion, like you were talking about deleting the apps, like you have these behaviors, you know, these risk behaviors, which we all do, that are built in for us. And we have every reason to engage in the behavior. There, no one is encouraging us to not engage in the behavior. And if they are encouraging us not to engage in the behavior, they're doing so through a dopamine giving device. <laughs> I, yeah, it's quite a thing to untangle, honestly. Like when you think about all of that and the thing that like broke through for me that was the most, I was like, I need to tattoo this on myself somewhere was like the idea of paying for it ahead of time. Yes. I'm prepaying the, that side of the, of the balancing beam. And, uh, and in doing so, then I can just reap the rewards. Can I be honest though? Also, when I heard that, I went, okay, so now uh, exercise addiction or. <laughs> oh, I'm in. They're like, what, 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 what I got to get we, that shit going. What are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? I got to get it going. Look, I mean, I think if you are a person who has low dopamine, hello, Ashley, low blasting game <laughs> and Scott Drockelman. Um, if you're a person who has low, dro low Drockelman, low, low Drockelman, if you low Drockelman, I'm not touching that with your a 10 doctor. foot pole. <laughs> see your doctor. <laughs> uh, if, if you're a person who has low dopamine, or Drockelman, <laughs> if you have low dopamine, then I think we're going to get caught in the web somewhere. So we might as well choose where we're going to go, right? So it's like, okay, Ashley, you can be addicted to your phone or you can be addicted to lifting heavy weights, your choice, right? It's both of them are going to lack a balance and, you know, whatever, <laughs> but at least, you know, at least one of them ha has a, some sort of significant upside. And I think that's, you know, you choose, choose your struggle, choose, right. choose what it is you're going to, you're going to do. And if, and that's sort of where the awareness piece, she talked about awareness. I think that's where the awareness is helpful. Not that it's going to stop me from doing it, but I can channel it into, it's like, I have the, you know, the addiction power or whatever, if you will. And you know what I'm thinking of for, for my nineties friends, I'm thinking, 
thinking of Care Bears, you know, uh-huh. remember the Care Bears uh-huh. and like in their heart, they have the, the Care Bear stare Ooh. or whatever. I ha- that's my addiction. I have Care Bear stare. It's like coming out of my chest. And the only thing I can't stop my Care Bear stare, right? I can't stop it from coming out of me, but I can turn my body and face it somewhere else, right? It may hit a beautiful person <laughs> that I become obsessed with or hit um, a chocolate cake, but I need to aim that bitch at the gym. You know what I mean? Care Bears stare all the way to some killer delts. You saying. know, that's yeah, it. That's all I'm saying. So basically what I took from that is I need to Care Bear stare in the direction of difficult physical activities. I think there's something really wrong I, with my brain. <laughs> I assume that that's what she meant by her whole talk, by everything I she said. I honestly think that was the whole point of the book. You're just going to sum up the neurobiology here. Take your Care Bear stare oh, and stare that shit at the gym. At the gym or something good. Or something, something good. You know, maybe a real hard uh, landscaping job. Who's to say? <laughs> I wouldn't have been my first thought, but I mean, yeah, I definitely can agree with that. I was that. just trying to think, you know, no, it's good. You, it's carry, you know, you maybe you don't want to pay for gym membership. So you just get some like heavy bags of mulch and you just kind of. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a short term plan. And let's nope, you just keep moving it around. <laughs> now you're a landscaper. That's how it happened. How did t- stop, tell me how you became a landscaper, professional well, landscaping? Funny story. Started with a Care Bear stare and six, 600 <laughs> yeah. bags of mulch later. And here yeah. I am. Look, listen, I the just king fall, of Southern California landscaping. You yeah. know, it's just me. It's just what I'm doing now. What listen, I am. I had to be addicted to something. No, we didn't lose the plot, but we. <laughs> I'll admit we stepped away from it. Okay. No, 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 no. I no. think we're directly yeah, we're on yeah. task and talking about everything. Everybody's yeah. been with us this whole. We're certainly while. parallel, <laughs> if yep. not perpendicular. Yep. Either, way. <laughs> Either, perpendicular. Way. <laughs> Either way. Either way. Well, here's your uh, weekly oh, reminder uh, oh, to. We're the not joke. there yet. Oh, okay. you thought? Not yet. I did. I did. I was. That was bracing. But then you gave people an early warnings. They might click off right now. Yeah, wait, yeah. wait two seconds. This is your weekly yeah. reminder to check out lionrock.life. If you haven't, you can do it risk-free for 30 days. Risk-free. With the courage code. What? The courage code is courage. With the courage code courage. <laughs> with the, the discount prom- code is courage, y'all. If if that was confusing. I think you need a little more Drockelman in that. In that <laughs> I'm very low on Drockelman right now. Low, low <laughs> very low. You should check out lionrock.life, download the app Lionrock Life, and get your hits of dopamine from dot life. Okay. You need that community. You need that right now. All sorts of different topics, over 70 different meetings a week. Check that bish out. Okay. All right, Ashley, are you ready? No, I'm never ready for a dad <laughs> joke like of your caliber. Like, okay, can I just say that I was listening to an episode where you did the first dad joke? I had the same physical experience <laughs> in the vehicle listening to you do the dad joke, knowing it was coming as I did the first time I experienced it. You know, we should have asked Dr. Lemke about, about what's jokes. happening in your body. In my brain. In, yeah, in, in my in, body. In anticipation of dad jokes. <laughs> I feel like a teenager who was being dropped off at school and she was dressed by her mother. That's how it feels. I'm like getting out of the car, like, okay, so. 
this is what she did. I'm just going to go with it. Well, the bonnet. Your last chance to jump into the skate pod, everyone. No, no. Let's Here get, we hit go. me with it. I'm puckered. This one, you don't get to participate. I'm sorry. This one, you're just going to have a I wash over you. It. Yep. Uh, my wife is really mad at the fact that I have no sense of direction. So I packed up my stuff and write. <laughs> what? Why are you telling jokes? I literally don't understand. Okay. I packed up my stuff and write. Yeah. She's mad about my poor sense of direction. So I packed up my bags and write. Oh, as opposed to <laughs> left. Oh my fucking. <laughs> <laughs> They're so dumb. I don't get it. <laughs> You guys, <laughs> as opposed to packed up stuff and left, it's packed up myself and right. Okay. Oh my God. Oh, it is so. And now no one is low on Drockelman. Their dosage oh. is just <laughs> the roof. It's the roof. It is. Oh. It's actually at a dangerous level oh, at this point. Dangerous level. Let me you just know. tell you that pain, that pain lever is going to be just <laughs> flipping out. You guys, I'm too dumb for dad jokes. Oh my god. Well, this was kind of a highbrow. You know, this was a this was a real brainy kind of an episode. So you know, yeah, gotta so you have a to... brainy joke at the you end. Have to you know? <laughs> okay, can I just this is embarrassing to admit, but can I just tell you that I was thinking that you were saying packed up my stuff and write like W R I T E. And I was like, I don't why is that right? What? What are we writing? Yeah, what are you writing? <laughs> why is he writing her letters? Why are you writing so her letters? Confused. <laughs> Oh, oh dear well we hope this week for you is great and what do you wish him this week i wish you lots of naturally well-earned dopamine i wish that you would check out lion rock life app with the discount code courage and i wish that you would check out I like the audiobook, but you know, if you're a hard book person, which I also get, Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, Anna Lemke. It is super, super, super entertaining and worth the listen. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.